When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A philosopher, an economist, and a theologian walk into a bar. The bartender says, good to see you, Paul, because Paul Blaschko is two out of those three things. He's a philosopher, theologian, and I guess I'm the economist. And I don't know the punchline, but since 2015, he and his colleague, Megan Sullivan, have taught God and the good life. It's the most popular, the most popular undergraduate course at Notre Dame, the University of Notre Dame. Recently, they published The Good Life Method, reasoning through the big questions of happiness, faith, and meaning. He has written extensively about the meaning of work as well that we're going to dig into today and gives us tips for folks near retirement and how they can achieve a greater sense of purpose and happiness even as they are in retirement. He says as folks age, they have the advantage of gaining an appreciation for education, learning, just through life experience, which of course is the best education of all. Through the lens of Aristotle and Aristotle's wisdom, Paul will show us how to find that work to life balance so we can glide along the path to retirement happiness. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Paul, thank you for being here on the Retire Sooner Podcast. Tell our audience where you are streaming live from. I am in lovely South Bend, Indiana, here at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, We're just starting the semester up, so our our students have all come back into town. uh, And I'm very excited to be with you. You've got, for our audience that can't see it, it is the quintessential professor backdrop where you are. (laughs) It's a a cement, it's painted cement, uh, (laughs) cinder blocks. Our offices here are kind of like cells. It's sort of monastic. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, it's like we've got the the cell here. I'm glad you can't see. Right before I got on, I, I hid the ramen noodles in the background. I was like, I don't, that'd be embarrassing. If they, you <laughs> but know. It, it looks like kind of a, a cell block in Notre, Notre Dame, which sounds like that all fits. You've got a whiteboard, though. You've got there you a, go. A, a, and profe- it's very professorial. It looks cool. I love it. Um, I guess we start out light, but this is, I think this is a heavy topic. And I've thought a lot about this. In fact, I talked to a friend of mine, a family client that I've worked with for a lot of years, who's a, was a philosophy major and thinks a lot about religion. And I was telling him about this interview coming up. I was, I'm excited to hear from you, Paul. And I think maybe first, right off the bat, I think for our audience should understand you do, you teach the most popular or sought after course at Notre Dame, which is, which is God and the good life. Yeah. 
and and then obviously you have a, you you do have a new you have a book called the Good Life Method. When I first discovered you, one my first question that popped into my mind was that you are a philosophy major, but you're teaching in Notre Dame, and you're also teaching about you know, the word God. Yeah, is in the title of your class, and I wonder that the maybe to delineate the difference between theology and philosophy. When I was when I read your bio, I was thinking, oh, you must have studied theology. And correct me, if, but you have not, right? You're a philosophy major talking about God. Explain those two to- seemingly overlapping things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I should mention, too, here uh, at Notre Dame, the philosophy and theology departments share a building. Uh, there's even some historical reasons for this, right, which uh, maybe I can get into just a little bit. Uh, but yeah, as a, as a philosopher, you know, my only methodology, the only sort of instrument or tool that I use is just my brain, just like thinking hard, right? We don't, we don't require these like big expensive instruments. Uh, and you know, when it comes to, uh, presuppositions or assumptions, we try not to assume anything that we can't prove logically. Uh, so, you know, if you go over to the theology department, you can take on certain assumptions or presuppositions. You can say like, okay, let's suppose that, you know, scripture is inspired or that there's some tradition that, you know, uh, you can access sort of divine revelation from. In philosophy, we don't do any of that, uh, but we still talk about, you know, literally anything that you can reason about. So uh, when thinking about how to structure your life, what goals you want to go after, uh, what makes life meaningful, for a lot of people, uh, the answer is, you know, intimately bound up with, tied up with religion. And so philosophers want to think about that and want to think really seriously uh, about the impact that that has. Now, the difference I would say is that for me, I'm not going to presuppose uh, that there is, you know, uh, well, I won't presuppose any particular, the truth of any particular religious tradition. Instead, we'll take a step back and say, okay, let's, uh, you know, assume that that God is uh, something like, an omniscient, all-powerful being, could such a being even exist? Let's start there, right? Is it even logically possible? So the kinds of questions that we're asking about God are very different, right? Instead of asking like, you know, my colleagues over in the theology department might say like, how does the incarnation work? Or like, what is the Trinity? Uh, We're asking even more basic questions. Could an all-powerful being even exist? Is that even sort of logically consistent? Yeah. Uh, Hold hold on. Okay. So, I want to go back to the, the difference between a presupposition and an assumption. So what, t- so an assumption, I guess would maybe describe those two nuances. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, uh, I guess the way that I'm using it, um, if you want to assume something for the sake of argument or for, you know, some sort of sort of inquiry, right. You, you, you can build that in, you can say, okay, well, let's assume if God exists, God's all powerful. Now let's trace out the logical consequences of that. On the other hand, you know, there are different disciplines that want to say, well, let's just build in certain presuppositions. We're not going to question whether God exists. Instead, we're going to ask, you know, what does some traditions revelation teach us about the world or about creation or something like that? So I guess the way that I'm using it in philosophy, there aren't any unquestionable presuppositions. You can question anything at all. Okay. Uh, but if you want to assume something for the sake of argument, you could certainly do that too, right? So you're not yeah. trying to prove something necessarily with a presupposition. You are just saying, look, we're going to, we're going to assume this so we can, we can play this out. Yeah. Let's take that on board. Yeah. In philosophy, that's what we do a lot, right? We just say like, okay, so like, you know, assume, assume for the sake of argument that God exists. 
okay, then how would we explain the existence of evil in the world? Uh, yeah. Or assume for the sake of argument, you know. Can we just start right there? Where, does God exist? Oh, man. Uh, let's just start with it. We're going to start small and easy. Heavy hitting. Tell me, right. Let's just start small. We'll work up to some harder questions. I love it. How have you, so as a philosopher, how do you answer that question? So the way that I would approach the question is I would try to frame it a little bit, right? I try to say, look, here we're asking a question about what evidence we have to believe that a being of a particular sort exists. Now, again, in framing the question, one of the things that philosophers will often do is they'll say, okay, well, let's define sort of, you know, in, in the most sort of theoretically neutral or abstract way we can, what God would be. Mm -hmm. uh, for philosophers, that typically means uh, a being with three properties, omniscience, so all-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerful, and omnibenevolence, all-good, right? So if you go into a philosophical debate and you want to prove that God exists or argue that God doesn't exist, typically we'll say, let's just think about God as having those three properties. It, just those three. Just all those knowing, three. All-knowing, all-powerful, yeah. all-good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, any of those would be nice to have. God has all three if God exists. Let's just right. start there. And then uh, we start asking questions about whether we've got good evidence that such a being does or doesn't exist. Now, in, so in the book, uh, you know, we sort of take this from a couple of different angles. From a theist point of view, from a religious believer's point of view, here's an argument. Here's an argument from Thomas Aquinas that God exists, that a being like that has to exist. Again, a the from a theologist. Yep. Yeah. Well, from, from he is a religious believer, but here he's trying to give anybody a reason to think that God exists. So, so he's not trying to presuppose too much about the truth of religion. He says, look, uh, suppose there wasn't a being that necessarily existed, right? And here's another attribute of God that, that uh, you know, we typically associate with God, that God, if God exists, couldn't have failed to exist because that would be an imperfection, right? The fact that we exist but could fail to exist, that's an imperfection. Mm. If God's a perfect being, then God wouldn't be like that. Mm. So Aquinas says, there's got to be a being like that, because if there isn't a being like that, if everything is such that it could fail to exist, well, imagine, you know, an infinite stretch of time into the past, uh, there would have been a point at which there wasn't anything. So if everything can fail to exist, there would have been a point at which there wasn't anything. Mm. But if there's a point at which there wasn't anything then there would be nothing to bring into existence the things that actually exist today. Oof. Okay. So there's got to be at least one thing that necessarily exists. And so again, you keep, so you've, were the, you've, you, you've used the word thing, but yeah. not being yet. Yeah, good. So one thing that, that exists, right? That is, let's say these categories. And this, wait, did, did Aquinas, was he talking about these three categories or no? Keep going, keep going. So this is good. No, this is this is a good point. So for Aquinas, he's going to prove these different attributes sort of separately. And then he's going to kind of come up with this argument and say, okay, I've given you a bunch of arguments. I've given you a, an argument that a necessary being has to exist, an argument that an omnipotent being exists, right? And he's going to add those together and say, okay, uh, once he gets you to admit, if you're sort of, you know, arguing against uh, uh, Aquinas here, once he gets you to admit that a being with some of these attributes exists, he's going to say, okay, but that's just what we mean by God, right? Uh, mm. So that's a huge step. 
he's not purporting to have proved to you that the Christian God exists or that uh, the Muslim God exists or that, you know, uh, a God in line with any particular religious tradition exists. Uh, Aquinas and, and other philosophers are going to say, well, there's still like quite a bit of room here. There's still sort of um, sort of gap that faith is going to have to fill. Yeah. But uh, there is, you know, a lot of reasoning that we can do uh, before we get to that point. We don't have to just say, you know, as a, a, a religious philosopher, we don't have to just say like, yeah, God exists purely. We take that purely on faith and then just proceed from there. Uh, so that's that's one angle that we take on it, right? In the book, we say, you know, let's consider some arguments for God's existence. And then I'll just reference another angle we take is we say, okay, but, you know, let's look at the biggest challenges or obstacles to arguments like that. And we consider things like the existence of evil in the world. That's obviously, uh, that's kind of the biggest question around that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If, so, if, if God is omnibenevolent, I don't know if mm-hmm. I'm saying that right, then yep. why would, why, what's the point of the evil? Exactly. Right. And like one of the analogies that really uh, I think hits home here is, you know, suppose I think I'm a pretty good parent uh, and I've got a lot of sort of power and control over over my kids' lives. I can you know protect them in various ways. Uh, and I know what's going on. If I allowed them to suffer greatly for no real reason, you would think, you know, I've got to lack one of those properties. I'm not either. I'm not good. I don't know what's going on or I'm not you know powerful enough to prevent it. Well, think about, you know, by analogy, think about uh, the kind of evil that exists in the world, the kind of things that happen to people, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, Some philosophers want to say, you know, given that a being with those three properties that we had talked about at the beginning can't possibly exist. Either God isn't all powerful, either God, you know, isn't all powerful, doesn't know everything about the world or, um, uh, isn't all good, right? Mm. Uh, and any religious believer, if forced to say that a being doesn't exist with those three properties, is going to be in trouble because uh, there's there are very few religious traditions that want to say, okay, fine, God still exists, but doesn't know anything or doesn't know everything or you know is is limited in some way. So that's another angle we take in the book. We we consider arguments like that. Okay, so ultimately. Is there a definitive answer around that or is it philosophically it is it's kind of this algorithm that doesn't necessarily ever get solved perfectly? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, it's it's a, a good general question about philosophy uh, because we certainly are in the business of giving answers. Right. And I think, you know, particular philosophers are going to want to convince you that their answer is right. On the other hand, these are debates that have been happening for 2,500 years yeah, longer, yeah, that's right? That's so true. And so in contemporary It's like, it's like economists. We're going to continue to debate till the I end of it. time. Yeah. And I think that's a great analogy. I think, you know, there's a lot of analogies with other disciplines like this where um, I don't think anybody practicing philosophy would want to say, oh, well, there is no answer. We just keep going around in circles. On the other hand, we want to be humble and say like, you know, these are hard questions. They're huge questions. Yeah, these are kind of big questions. Yeah. <laughs> and we keep learning new things all the time. So in that sense, I would say, you know, it isn't the case that all philosophers are going to say, well, actually, you know what? Yep. Problem of evil. It's been solved. Like, here's the here's the one answer. You know, this guy, whatever, Bill answered it. Now we're done. Uh, on the other hand, there are uh, better and worse answers that I think people do find convincing. Uh, so I could point to, you know, different arguments, different philosophers who have given answers that uh, I think like, yeah, I think that's right. Like I would try to persuade you of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think sort of, uh, I guess the takeaway here is 
it is such a big question. It's, you know, one of those things, I think it's just going to be debated until, the, until people stop debating. Until the end of time, until chat yeah. GPT figures it out for us. <laughs> just takes over. Yeah. Full disclosure, I am affiliated with Capital Investment Advisors, which is a full service and a fee-only financial planning and investment management firm in Atlanta and Denver and Tampa and Phoenix or wherever you are. And if you'd like to take your retirement planning or retire sooner journey to the next level, Capital Investment Advisors would love to help. You can find our team and schedule a time to chat right at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R wealth.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right. So let's go to the questions that you talk about in the class and the book. Yeah. So in your course, you're helping students figure out some, again, huge, these are all such heavy questions, right? <laughs> how should you treat other people? How should you, how should you believe? Should you practice religion? What, what would make your life meaningful? Yeah. So I didn't have a class like this. No wonder it was, it's so popular. I, I want to know the answer to all four of these. So where, where do you want to start? Yeah. Well, one thing I could say is, you know, uh, an assignment that we've got that frames the whole class uh, is called the apology assignment. And so, you know, one of the real goals that we've got in this class is to help our students wrestle with what some of the greatest thinkers have said about these questions and then come to some sort of, you know, even if it's a tentative answer, some sort of answer for themselves, uh, because it's really important. I mean, we're committed to this idea that it's really important uh, to attempt to answer these questions. Uh, it's going to make a huge difference for your life. Um, mm -hmm. And so we we encourage our students to complete what we call a philosophical apology. Uh, yeah, explain a, the apology, the, the philosophical apology. Yeah. So historically, philosophers... Uh, when pressed or when questioned, especially about their beliefs, right? So St. Augustine is a good example of this. He was a rhetorician. Uh, he was kind of this professor. He was in high society. He was this elite academic. And, you know, he was really aspiring to, to sort of a position of political power. He suddenly converts to Christianity, which at the time was, you know, this barbaric religion that was like, you know, low culture, just terrible poetry. Like everybody thought, what are you doing? And so what does he do? He writes a book called The Confessions, where he lays out philosophically what his beliefs are, and he argues for those, but he also tells the story of his life to make sense of that, right? Mm. And philosophers have done this, you know, not just in the Christian tradition. Uh, David Hume uh, and, and Nietzsche famously write, you know, the sort of philosophical story of their life to make themselves intelligible to the world, to say, you know, you think I'm crazy. I'm committed to these, you know, pretty, pretty out there views. Let me explain that to you. Let me tell you why? how I came to these yeah. views and why. So that's what we have our students do, right? And those four questions that you had mentioned about uh, religion and belief and meaning, you know, the, the real sort of core of our classes is we raise different philosophical answers to those questions. And then we challenge our students to engage with those and to try to answer them on their own in their own philosophical apology. Uh, so that's a, a project that I think is, is really useful and, and helpful 
uh, for all of us. Like you mentioned, you know, not not everybody takes a class like this in college. Uh, and so this is really kind of the project of of the book, the broader project that we're on is is trying to give people a chance to think through those things and uh, and do that in the context of their own experience. So we're thinking about explaining or telling where we come from and our story, which then helps us arrive at the answer to these really big questions. Like, how do I treat other people or how should I? What should I believe? Should I practice religion? So obviously there is no right answer for your students in the class. Is that it is, it is it more about them and then us, our listeners, if we're trying to understand how to live a really a better life, right? I mean, that is, that's the point of this, the good life method. Yeah. Are we, is that, is that really the first step? Is it for us to just try to answer these questions from our own experience? And those are correct at that point, right? Is that, is, would that be fair to say or no? Yeah, good. So the way I would put it, uh, and the way that I do put it in the classes that I teach is, uh, certainly all the philosophers that we're examining think that they've got some unique insight into the human experience. So Aristotle thinks it is deeply important. It is a deeply important fact about you that you're a rational being, that you can reflect on your life and that you can guide your life in certain ways, Mm -hmm. that you can acquire better or worse habits and that these sort of become part of who you are, part of your character. And so Aristotle is going to want to convince you that you should spend a lot of time focusing on virtue, focusing on building up the kinds of habits, the sort of moral muscles that you need to achieve the ultimate goal, which in his mind is a happy life, a sort of contented, virtuous, you know, life where you're contemplating the truth, you know, living with others, et cetera. Now, there are other philosophers. That yeah, give me wanna... the opposite of that. So who would be a fatalist that says, yeah. no matter what you do, your life is your life? Oh man. So there's plenty of, there's plenty of these, right? Like, is that uh, the opposite of it? What, yeah. Give me the, what's the opposite or the other end of the spectrum relative to an Aristotle? I think so. Probably the biggest rival that we consider in the class and one that really resonates with a lot of our students is uh, utilitarianism, mm-hmm. right? So utilitarians argue, look, in thinking about what to do, what your moral obligations are, the only thing that matters is pain and pleasure. And not just your pain and pleasure, but the pain and pleasure that your actions are going to uh, sort of have out there in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So for a virtue ethicist, for somebody like Aristotle, the most important thing that you can do is reflect on your character, sort of use your experience to grow morally as a person. For the utilitarian, that's one of the sort of most selfish things you can do, right? Like sitting back and not caring about other people, sort of just like focusing on your own moral growth and, and uh, you know, sort of your inner life. You're not focused on the right things at all. So those views, right, it's really important to put those views in conversation. If our students come out convinced by the utilitarian, there is an actual movement out there, like a philosophical movement. Uh, that says, you know, the thing they should do in their career is maximize their income, donate as much to the most effective charities that they possibly can, save as many lives as they can, and then they've done their moral duty, right? That is a pure utilitarian belief. That is, yeah, totally. That's a pure utilitarian belief. Just you are sort of a cog in this, this big system. You should maximize your ability to impact the lives of other people in a beneficial way. In however you think you can contribute the most. So if you think you can yeah. go to Wall Street and start a hedge fund and make a billion dollars and give most of it away, 
then that's your utilitarian calling. If you're not a somebody that could ever do that, would the utilitarian philosophy say you should go dedicate your life to, to uh, nonprofit public service? Perfect. Yep, absolutely. Got like whatever okay. your whatever your sort of ability to maximize uh, the greatest sort of uh, uh, pleasure for the greatest number of people, whatever that happens mm. to be for you, that's what you've got to do, right? But it doesn't relate then necessarily back to you. It relates back to the world. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. And Aristotle's on the other side of that. It sounds a little bit more like the happy retiree camp for me. And again, we think about, I study the happy retiree. It sounds like they would maybe be more in the Aristotle camp of there are things that I can work on that are new habits I can prove on. This is me introspectively figuring out how to have a better life as someone that I'm, ra I'm rationalizing of that. Is that, is that what we, Aristotle would say? I think that's a hundred percent right. And, and there's some interesting facts about Aristotle that kind of support this view that you're coming up with. Right. Uh, so Aristotle is really concerned about what our lives are going to be like later in life. Right. Mm. Uh, he thinks happiness, you know, people often think of happiness as, you know, achieving certain external goods like power or having a certain amount of money. And, and he thinks, you know, we often get distracted by these things. He thinks unless you're thinking about cultivating these personality traits, these virtues, these things that, you know, aren't really going to come to fruition until very late in life, you're really missing out on the most important thing, right? So he thinks of happiness as this sort of thing that when you're 50, 60, 70 years old, I mean, here I'm like translating Aristotle very loosely, yeah. uh, you know, it's going to be sort of baked into the kind of person that you are, right? So that's, that's exactly right. Th these philosophies have very different sets of practical advice, very different ways that you should live depending on, you know, which one you're convinced by, which one you think is true. And so for us, you know, one, one of the things that we're doing is really trying to tell our students, look, you should compare these things. You should think about these things right now because it's going to have a massive difference sort of for you later in life, which, which philosophy you end up ascribing to or internalizing. All right. So from your perspective then, and you're the guy that yeah, writes the yeah. book on this, right? You're the author of this. Describe to our listeners, what is, this is your perspective. What is the good life method? What is it? So I am convinced by Aristotle. I'm convinced by this virtue ethics tradition. I, I think, can tell you're leaning in that direction. <laughs> yeah. I think. Uh, this guy leans Aristotle. I, I think tell. that's, <laughs> I think that's right. I think, I think Aristotle just gets a lot of things right. I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that convinces me, convinces a lot of our students is, you know, Aristotle, right at the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, which is a, a book that was written, compiled, either he wrote it or one of his students wrote it, but it's from lecture notes that he gave on a course about how to be happy, hmm. about how to achieve happiness. By the happiness. way, what year was Aristotle flopping around? Oh, man. Uh, this is like 500 BC. This is a while ago. Okay. This is a while, a little while back. Yeah. Uh, so Aristotle, he has this argument. He says, look, everything you do is ultimately aiming at something, right? And so one of the first philosophical tasks that you've got to embark upon is to discover what that thing is. Otherwise, you're just like wandering around in the dark. And so he gives us this sort of set of questions, this, this sort of method. He says, look, if, if you're trying to earn money, and this is one of the first days in class, I ask my students this, I say, you know, what, why are you even here? Why are you in this class? And they're like, ah, I want a degree. Okay, well, why? And you're like, well, I don't know. I want a job. And you're like, well, why? Well, because I got to earn money. Well, why? Right? You can ask this question over and over and over. Aristotle's got this theory and he's got arguments to support it. He says, the answer is always going to come down to, well, I want to be happy, right? Mm. 
Now, he means something really particular by happy. He doesn't just think it's like this good feeling that you get uh, or even a good feeling that you can sustain for a couple of years or something like that. Uh, and so he goes into that. But he thinks this is the fundamental goal that we've all got. This is our ultimate purpose, right? What, uh, to be happy. To be Happiness happy. is the ultimate. If you keep asking why, you always end up with happy. Exactly. Every single thing, every single thing that you could be pursuing, wealth, fame, power, money, friendship, it's all going to end up in happiness. It's either uh, a constituent of happiness. It's part of what it is for you to be happy, or it's something that you want because you think it's going to get you happiness. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is deeply convincing. That is that is, that is yeah. just sort of true. And once you get there, there's not much more you can say. You know, if, if I get to the point where my students like, well, I don't because I want to be happy. And then I'm like, well, why do you want to be happy? Because I want to be happy. Then you, you can just shrug. You can be like, I, you don't understand what you're asking anymore, right? Then you're in an infinite loop. Exactly. Why do you want to be happy? Because I want to be happy. Why do you want to be happy? Because I want to be happy. That's so right. when you That's... get to an infinity loop, you've answered the question. Boom. That's right. By the way, do the students that come out utilitarians, do they yeah. get like C's and D's and the, and the Aristotle guys get <laughs> A's Automatically and D's? fail them. I just immediately <laughs> fail them. Because, it, yeah, yeah. Intellectually curious. 100 students... How many ultimately end up prescribing more to Aristotle versus is I'm going to, I'm going to guess 90, 10. I, I'm going to guess 90 are Aristotle, 10 are utilitarian. I'd say that's not too far off. And it's interesting to think about why, right? Uh, and there's a lot of reasons. One is that like uh, different religions are going to have different relationships with some of these theories. Uh, Catholicism in particular is pretty obsessed with Aristotle Thomas Aquinas is probably the biggest philosophical thinker in the Catholic sort of tradition. And he used to call Aristotle the philosopher. Like, you know, you, you, there, there was no other philosopher in his mind. Like if he referred to the philosopher, it was just Aristotle. Mm. So that, that could be a part of it, right? So it might be different at different universities, but I would say that's, that's pretty close. I'd say, you know, maybe 80% of our students end up writing about uh, virtue ethics and Aristotle but there's a, yeah, not non sort of, you know, trivial uh, percentage of them that are really taken with this idea that, look, you know, from the time they've been little, they've been they've been told, like, your sort of greatest aspiration has to be to make an impact in the world, to change things for the better. And a lot of them see utilitarian thinking and think, yeah, like that's that's a way of putting this into practice. Right. You know, and so it, I can see that it does help, Paul, if you're. Why not answer that purpose early on in college to be this ultimate rudder for your life? Uh, and I think that it sounds like that maybe is what this does, is that it really sounds like a fundamental building block of, what, of all the decisions you end up making. If you know that you're utilitarian or you believe in that from a pretty early age, it's really going to impact your, your big decisions in life. I think that's right. And, kind of. you know, a second ago you had asked, what is the good life method? And I'm just realizing I kind of oh, yeah. sidestep that. Skip that. Come on, tell me. Here's <laughs> well, do, well, hold on. I thought that the start of that is to kind of understand you philosophically or no. What's the start of the good life message? I think that's right. I think that's right. So figuring out what your big sort of what your answers to these big questions are. And then I'd say the second step is to embody those, enact those, live those out in the world so that you can reflect back on them and really evaluate if you think they're true, right? So I certainly, I certainly, I think you're hundred percent right. If you can answer a big question like this early on in college, right? It's going to set you on a certain path, but I definitely don't think you should end there. 
And Aristotle has a really interesting point in this course on happiness that he taught, this book, The Nicomachean Ethics. He says, look, you can do a lot of moral philosophy. You can think a lot theoretically you know, about, about these big questions. He says, until you have life experience, though, you don't really know how to sort through some of the particulars, right? And so for Aristotle, I would say the second step of the good life method is to reflect on your experience, experience where, you know, you're intentionally trying to embody utilitarianism or virtue ethics or whatever, and ask yourself, okay, what does my experience have to say about this theory that I'm ascribing to? Does it, you know, sort of resonate with the theory? Does it sort of prove the theory, right? I've been trying for 40 years to become a virtuous person to achieve this kind of happiness. Is it working? Or does my experience kind of clash with it, right? So I'd say that's that's another thing that we're trying to do here. Um, you know, I, I, one of the courses that I teach here at Notre Dame is, is on the philosophy of work. And I always tell my students, like, I want you to know these things now. I want you to think through these big questions now. But I also want you to, to have somewhere to go when you hit that first midlife crisis or when you, you know, start thinking about transitioning from jobs and, and sort of, you know, just disorients everything that you've thought about your goals and your values. And for me, that's the beauty of philosophy is that at every sort of stage in your life, it gives you something else. There's always sort of philosophical reflection to be done. And for Aristotle, it's really crucial that you're doing that really, you know, up until the end of your life, up until, uh, uh, yeah. All the way through. So All the way through. So again, and I always think of this as a, from the happy retirees perspective, if you hadn't figured this out in college, it's probably never too late. Yeah. So you start out with understanding a philosophy that that you believe in, it resonates with you. Then you're trying to check in on your own life experience. Does that does that match with my philosophy? Is that is that correct? Absolutely. And then is then when is the third step then? Yeah, I mean just kind of reconfiguring, right? So the way Aristotle puts it is he says when we do philosophy, we're studying these things not so that we get an abstract theory of the good or of what virtue is, but so that we can become better people. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, all of this thinking would be useless. So what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're figuring out, okay, what am I committed to? What's the answer to this big question? How does that sort of entail that I should live? Like, what should I do given that thing? Now reflect back. Does your experience sort of falsify or does it support that theory? And then reconfigure, right? You sort of, it's its this virtuous loop. You think back, like, am I becoming a better person because of my commitment to virtue ethics or to utilitarianism uh, or to stoicism? And it's this kind of ongoing process, this ongoing dialogue. One of the things that we you know really recommend to our students, but also people in the book, is that you're doing this with other people as well. It's really important that you're, you're dialoguing about this, that you're sharing your experience. Because we have so many blind spots, you know, we could think like, oh, yeah, like my life's going incredibly well uh, when really like, you know, things are falling apart or, you know, I'm, I'm not really treating people very well. So having that sort of uh, interpersonal element to that community is super important. Yeah, I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you, you talk about the kind of the importance of being able to have good conversations and and asking good questions. And I think is that part of what you're talking about right now? Is that yeah. just the importance of that? Absolutely. So if you look at philosophy all the way back to, to Plato and Socrates, right, it's always something that you do with other people. You don't want to like sit in your room, just like read philosophy and just be like, okay, I figured it out. I'm done. 
it's something that you do in dialogue with other people, right? So Socrates really famously just wander around uh, Athens and just ask questions to the point, you know, where, where you know, it got so annoying to the, the officials there. That they were like, you know, you, you got to stop this. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to drink some hemlock. And he was like, ah, he's like, I'm not going to stop this. The unreflective life isn't worth living. Uh, and so he drank the hemlock. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's something that's, that's always been the case, right? Philosophers, again, up through Hume, uh, up through, you know, the present day, they'll sometimes even write their philosophical texts in the form of a dialogue because that sort of back and forth, being able to challenge somebody, being able to ask questions, you know, what, like, why do you think that it's so important uh, that you've got these deep friendships? Like, is that something I could learn from? Or is that something you're just kind of stuck on? That for philosophers uh, is a really crucial piece of the puzzle. So then let's go circle back to the theology piece of this. And you're a Catholic. I you're Catholic. Is that correct? That's right. So we go back to why is it important? I'm not saying we're going to answer the question, but why is it important to ask the question around the existence of, of God, number one? And two, if you're a, someone of faith, and by the way, I, I, this, I, this is a light statistic that because I study the, the impact of habits on retiree happiness, and I, I've asked a lot of questions around religion and just, just the attendance of church is one simple question. Like, do you go to church? How often do you go? Yeah, and there's a correlation, high correlation with happiness as, as as going to church increases, happiness increases, from at least what I've found until a certain point, and then it, it actually starts to roll over. Oh, interesting. Maybe that's because if you're going to church every day, something is you know really trying to answer something. Something's be, you know you need extra help with something. But I think my question is, if you're religious and you're not philosophical and you just believe, yeah, and you just say I just believe and and I just have the faith that God is here and God has a plan. Is that a little bit different than trying to answer a philosophical question? If it's just a pure, Hey, I just believe this. It's just, it's called faith for, I guess, for a reason. Yeah. So I asked you like seven questions there. I love it. Uh, so I'd say there's a really important distinction between interrogating one's religious belief philosophically and sort of resting content with one's religious faith. And, and I don't think they're totally incompatible, although I think, you know, particular people might have a desire to engage in, in you know, more philosophical speculation about their religious belief than others. And, and maybe that's, you know, that seems totally fine if there's some range. But I do think it's important sort of just and speaking personally, like as a philosopher, but also like a religious believer, I do think it's important to do both of those things. Right. So I think if you're not willing to engage rationally with arguments for and against, say, the existence of God or the truth of some particular religious belief. Right. As a Catholic, we believe totally nutty things like one of the things we believe is that like bread can literally be the body of Christ. It transubstantiates. And you think like, man, if that's not even metaphysically possible, uh, I definitely shouldn't believe that thing, right? But if the Catholics do believe that. Do you we do, we do in fact believe it. And, and uh there's an entire like sub-genre uh, uh discipline in philosophy of people going back and forth and saying, like, yeah, 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 here's the metaphysics, here's here's how it works, right? Wow. Um, I got like super into this like rabbit hole uh, uh a few years back. Um, I think so. Here's what I think, though. I think I think it's important to ask those questions and to be interrogating those things. 
in part because otherwise you're really vulnerable, right, to manipulation or to uh, being misled. Uh, you, you sort of you open yourself up to a kind of gullibility that I think is is potentially dangerous. But right? If you do, if what where what leads you to vulnerability and gullibility? If you refuse to engage in those kind of questions, right, or if you just say like, you know what, I don't care, like I'm just going to believe doesn't like the philosophy doesn't matter. I think you're really sort of opening yourself up to some dangers there, right? On the other hand, I think if you're so hyper-rationalistic, I think that's kind of wacky too, right? And and here's one analogy that often gets used in philosophy. Look, it is important to know whether there are good arguments for the existence of God, right? But that's a really high bar to have to uh, uh, sort of hurdle before you can take your faith seriously. Imagine somebody said to you, okay, you've got a friend how do you know that their mind exists? How do you know that they have a mind like you do? Like, prove that to me. You might think, okay, that's, you know, it's an interesting philosophical question, but I don't have to decisively rationally prove that they have a mind before I can just be friends with them, right? Yeah. Uh, you can kind of operate on these two lines in parallel with each other. Now, if it became very important for some reason to know whether your friend's mind existed, I guess like <laughs> you should you should explore that. Uh but to me, I guess what I'm sort of getting at here is I don't think that uh, those approaches are incompatible, right? Uh, I don't one think— One of complete rationalism yep. uh, versus one of just blind faith. Yes. I think we should bring those things closer together. I think there should be a tension there, and we should be going back and forth. But I think if you're on either of those sides, like the extremes— there's some danger there. There's some sort of you're closing yourself off in a way. Sounds a little bit like politics. Ah, maybe that's right. Maybe that's right. Again, can we be, you're talking about the spectrum of just complete blind faith, not asking any questions versus, well, show me the evidence, yep. right? Get, prove to me. We're, we're, show me, a, give me a picture of God. Show me a picture. I want a recording. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and that is, I think that you're saying, you are somewhere in the middle and that's what you teach or what you advocate. Is that correct or? Yeah. And that both of those sides are, are important, right? So one of the thinkers that we examine in the book and, and in the class is uh, William James. Uh, and William James has this really good point. He says, look, let's, you know, religious faith is interesting. Let's set that to a side for, for a second. And let's just think about the way that faith comes up in everyday life, Right. He says there are any number of uh, situations that we find ourselves in where we've just got to take a leap of faith. We've just got to make a choice, not being 100% certain that things are going to work out, right? So imagine trying to decide. I mean, even, you know, very practical things like uh, we bought a house a couple of years ago. How do I know that I'm going to be able to, you know, remain in my job for the next 50 years or that I'm, my income is going to be the same or the economy isn't going to collapse? I don't know those things. I can't have 100% certainty. And to demand that kind of certainty, it seems overly skeptical. It seems like you're you're being too demanding, too too sort of no. skeptical. It's impractical. In, yeah. In a, in a, it's impractical in any society, isn't it? Yeah, you just wouldn't be able to sort of move naturally through life, right? And so William James has this point, you've got to balance. You've got to, you've got to say, yes, of course evidence is important. Of course these arguments are important. But there's also situations you find yourself in where you've got to commit. You've got to take this leap of faith. And that's really close to the position that, that 
you know, we, I think a lot of my students end up finding really attractive. Uh, and it's certainly, yeah, very close to, to the position that I think I would ultimately want to defend. It is, it really, it, that is a very comforting way to look at it because it, it, to think about this analogy of we live in a pool of, uh, of relative faith and faithful steps to your point, right? How do I know I'm going to be okay if I get in a car yeah, or a plane ride, right? Or to buy a house. Like if we have some sort of degree of faith in almost every decision we make. So why isn't it okay to your point? Why isn't it okay to have the same thing when it comes to religion? So there's an element of just faith. I believe this because. That's right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's certainly uh, the way that William James approaches it. Uh, and he was writing in a, you know, a very rationalistic time where, uh, nobody in academia, nobody, uh, you know, that was sort of intellectually respectable thought faith was, was, uh, um, okay. Was, <laughs> you know, he was writing, uh, his audience was this sort of very hyper rationalistic crowd. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it's a good corrective if you find yourself kind of going down that line. So if you're, if you are, let's say you're a person of faith or, or deep mm -hmm. faith, do those people avoid the philosophical conversations or discussions? Sometimes, but I think they're wrong too. Now, this is what, you know, one of the things I love about philosophy is whenever you've got kind of a comfortable consensus, you want to jump to the other side and say, okay, well, wait a second. Let's think about this for, for a second, right? And so I, I, I do run into people, you know, uh, fellow believers or, or students that are coming to Notre Dame who don't want to encounter philosophy. You think there's something really dangerous about thinking philosophically about these things. Uh, it's going to threaten sort of their faith. They, they just, they want to protect it in some way. Oh, okay. Now, again, I think philosophy doesn't have to be incompatible or adversarial with faith. And I try to show them. I say, look, there are philosophers that are religious. There are the arguments for and against God's existence. But I do try to convince them. I do. And, you know, part of this is, is rational argument. Part of it's just trust building. Part of it's just relationship building and just saying, you know, trust me, I'm not trying to, to talk you out of uh, anything. But yeah, to your question, I, I certainly do think there can be a tendency uh, in certain religions or, or you know, for, for certain religious people to want to avoid the kind of philosophical argument. But I think it's important. I think you always want to hold those things in tension, the kind of faith and that sort of rational approach, that philosophical argument. I think you want to have both. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So you clearly are a big advocate of blending the two together, philosophy and religion, because you're a philosophy class, mm -hmm. but you're trying to teach to some extent the existence of God. Is that, is that accurate? Absolutely. So God comes in. Yep. Religion comes in at various points. Absolutely. You want to blend. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. That we want to sort of consider both of those things, consider uh, God and religion from a philosophical point of view. When kids get out of this class, do they usually do pretty well? Or is it, is it like any other class where you have a couple of people that, that do amazingly well, or is there a bell curve in the, in the, <laughs> in the God and the God and the good life? 
I love it. Uh, yeah, no, that wouldn't that be disappointing if you like failed the good life class? Like mm. you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. There's nothing we can do. And you know, uh, like any other class, my like, GPA suffered because class. of the good life class. Wait, what? Are you, what? <laughs> That's right. That's right. It is. You know, it's a big intro class. Our students are typically freshmen or, or kind of earlier in their their college career, and it's a required class. Oh, it is required. It is a required class. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, the students end up they they can. It fulfills a requirement is how I should put it. They can oh, take right. any it, other first philosophy class, um, but it fulfills a required class. Yeah. And, and you're hitting here on, on something that, that, you know, honestly, design wise has been uh, something that we've had to strike a balance on for years, which is like, how do you grade? How do you if we're asking students, tell me your personal sort of narrative, your life, open up, tell me the philosophy that, that you think is most convincing. How do you grade that? Right. Because we want to provide them with feedback. We want to say, look, we've got some philosophical expertise. We can help you think about this thing. But we, we definitely don't want somebody to say like, hey, here's like the thing, like like my core belief, my core commitment. And then say like, yeah, B. Like, you know, yeah. it's like there's something horrible about that. Uh, and so B so minus. We, yeah. 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 Kind of an okay, like, just OK take on on life. Think better. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've done various things uh, to kind of strike that balance. I'd say the biggest thing, and, and this is a really important part of the class for us, is We've got like a small army of undergraduate fellows and TAs that really build relationships with the students throughout the class. So all of our students are meeting in small groups of about 15 with somebody who's gone through the class just to dialogue about these big questions. And that dialogue, like, you know, you got to show up to it. But we're, we're not sitting in there like taking notes, grading. We're just saying, look, this is a space where we want you to explore. We want you to think about these questions in a really free sort of way. Our, our dialogue leaders are incredible. Uh, and then our TAs, too, are, are meeting with them in a really relational way, trying to walk through uh, the course the course content with them. But, yeah, it's, it's a tough thing, just grading in general, but especially when, you know, the content is your deepest held beliefs. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like as long as you are are admitting or as long as you're connecting with your own beliefs and you're really putting it out there, it sounds like an A, right? It sounds like a B or a C would be somebody who's really not trying you're, to really look inside. You're phoning it in, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah or, they kind yeah. of believe this. Yeah. <laughs> so you teach 20-year-olds, right? And Which is a cool time to try to learn to think through these big questions. It sounds like a really great opportunity to be able to do that at a young age. Absolutely. My question would be for our audience who's in their 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe 60s as they're getting into retirement or early retirement. What about doing this later in life? What would your advice be to someone who is still trying to improve their, as I guess as Aristotle would, would put it, their happiness or their virtue? Yeah, and how would that relate back to a greater level of satisfaction or happiness or purpose? It's somebody yeah. who's not who's not 20, like fi- maybe let's say you're 60, 65 and you're kind of done the working world. Yeah. How does this relate to them, this philosophy, the God and the good life? Absolutely. So one of the really cool things here at Notre Dame, we've got this program. It's called the Inspired Leadership Initiative. And it's people who have been out in the world uh, who are usually actually nearing kind of traditional retirement age and decide, all right, I'm sort of done with this career. I either want to pivot into something else or I want to transition into retirement. Uh, And so what they decide to do is they go back to college. They decide to come to Notre Dame for a year and take classes. Uh, And I've advised a number of these fellows, the fellows in their program, and actually have two of them right now in my philosophy of work class. Uh, And the thing that I've noticed 
is that they have such an appreciation of education and the education process uh, and such an appreciation of some of these texts, some of the things that honestly, you know, when you're going through Aristotle for the first time or Marcus Aurelius, it might not hit you. Right. And I think of this, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm what, like 30 something. I'm 35, I think 35. Uh, You know, when I was in college, I was reading some philosophers and they talk about, you know, what some experience of the importance of community family. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Great. Now I've got kids and something oh, like that. Oh, it's a totally There's like, yeah, different meaning. It's like an entirely different aspect of reality is opened up, right? And I want to think about that. And I want to answer big questions that come out of that. What do I owe to my kids? Like, what do I want for them? Like, what is just? Like, do I want to set them up to have a life that is sort of more prosperous than mine? Or is that going to ruin them in some way? Mm. So for me, to see the way that, that you know, these fellows in this program here at Notre Dame uh, or even, you know, friends, as we were writing this book, I would send drafts of it to my mom and dad and they would get their friends together and they'd read it to see the the way that they're able to bring their experience into the conversation, into the dialogue with Aristotle or with Marcus Aurelius or whoever uh, and reflect back on those things and kind of build a more coherent picture, sometimes just appreciating, look, that's, you know, like I n- I'd never thought about the importance of friendship. Aristotle goes on and on about friendship. They might think my whole life I've, I've had these really close friends. I've never really appreciated the sort of integral part they've played in my attempts to live the good life or acquire virtue. And just to be able to reflect on that and sort of put a label on it or, or you know, put that into a picture, I think that's valuable. Or if you're looking to, to kind of transition to the next sort of you know, venture the next thing that you're going to do, whether that's retirement or, or a, a new career or whatever. Again, these discussions that we have are so enriched by these fellows. Uh, we're constantly bringing their wisdom in. Uh, and again, this is a very sort of Aristotelian thing. Aristotle is is constantly talking about the importance of this experience. Aristotelian, I like that. The, there you go. I can see the next masterclass commercial. <laughs> happiness with Aristotle and Aristotle sitting there in a chair saying, ah, I've got a few things to say and teach on happiness. Take my masterclass. I love it. Philosophy of work. I want to ask you about that because that is, it's such a struggle in America, right? We have this arguably an amazing economy with unlimited possibility, but then we have this culture that we, we really work in America and then we overwork. We want freedom. We want happiness and we want all these things and we don't want to work, but we do want to work, but we don't want to work, but we overwork, but we don't want to overwork, but I'm working. So I don't have to work. Right. It's such a, it's maybe a harder question than does God exist? Paul, (laughs) what do you teach in the philosophy of work? What can you give to our audience to make the glide path of work more enjoyable, palatable? Yeah, absolutely. Give me the so, golden answer on this. Oh man, the golden answer. Let me let me let me tell you a couple of people that we read in the class. A couple of texts that I think are just really enlightening for a lot of the the students that go through this class, in the hopes that you know you can find some good ideas from from some of these thinkers and philosophers. We do read a lot of Aristotle. We also read a thinker, Joseph Pieper, who wrote a book called Leisure: The Basis of Culture, and in this book, he says as a culture we have lost any real concept of what leisure is. We're so obsessed with work that we have turned leisure into 
relaxation time so that we can work and achieve more. But he says that's never been sort of classically, historically, that's never been the role that leisure is supposed to play in our lives. It sort of gets the relationship backwards, right? So for Pieper, and he's drawing on virtue ethics, he's drawing on the Aristotle, he says, you know, to be at leisure is to be doing some sort of activity, some sort of productive activity for its own sake, not for the sake of something else. So give me an example of that. What do you mean? So it could be anything. It could be, you know, you're, you're uh, doing carpentry because you love carpentry. You're not doing it because you want to sell the thing or because you want to be the best carpenter. You're just doing it because you love it. That's it leisure. Poetry. That's leisure. According That's leisure. to Pieper. That's right. That's leisure. Now, leisure is saying, historically, leisure has been at the center of life, right? Because if you can be at leisure with people that you love, if you can build a community and then be at leisure, this is sort of the central condition for happiness, to actually be happy, right? But in our culture, he thinks we have just totally gotten things backwards. We think, look, you know, I've got to achieve things. I've got to have a certain status. I've got to, you know, consume this much to be happy. And so we've turned our leisure time into relaxation that recharges us to go back into the workforce and just to continue to achieve. And he thinks as long as we've got the relationship between those two things backwards like that, we're not actually going to hit an end point. There's never an end to the amount that you can achieve or consume or do. So you've got to have the, that relationship in the right sort of order. So you're saying what people are saying is we have a lot of our culture has the philosophy of work backwards because we think leisure is actually just to relax, to recharge, so we can be better at work. Yep. Whereas, Whereas leisure, yep. prior, a more organic definition of leisure is is to be at something you're loving. Yeah, and work is for the purpose of leisure, right? Mm. So for Pieper, for Aristotle, we work to be at leisure because that's what happiness depends on, right? And so if you don't have that relationship right, they think you're just going to be in this sort of cycle of dissatisfaction. You're always working harder, which requires you to, you know, sort of recharge longer, to work harder. To, you're just never going to achieve the thing. But, and this is where, you know, things get really crazy. Uh, in our culture, if people are right, we really don't know how to be at leisure. We don't know what leisure is. And so we've got to engage in certain practices, certain exercises uh, and again, there's there's um, a lot of philosophers. One of the ones I'll just throw out there that we read in the class, Byung-Chul Han, who says, in order to really discover what leisure is, we've got to learn how to be profoundly bored. We've got to learn how to detach from the kinds of distractions that we typically associate with leisure. So instead of you know sitting down and just like binging Netflix or just like checking your phone or whatever it is, we've got to become comfortable with this idea of being without doing, just being in the world. And he thinks this kind of profound boredom profound is boredom. deeply uncomfortable for us, right? Because we think like we've internalized. We've internalized kind of, this laziness, which equals bad. Sure, sure, exactly. And we've internalized. And a lot of my students, you know, I, I actually have them do this as an exercise. I say, okay, leave your phones here. I want you to go out on campus for 20 minutes and do nothing and then come back. And they come back and they say, that was terrifying, right? <laughs> like, and it is terrifying. I've tried it. Like, I don't even know where to look if I don't have my phone. I'm just like sitting on a bench and I'm just like, what do I, like, what am I doing, right? 
so those are the kinds of things, right? And there's a lot of different things that we talk about in that class. We talk about, you know, burnout. We talk about consumption. We talk about just sort of work-life balance, kind of how, how to order these things. There's a surprising amount of philosophy, sort of historically and contemporary philosophy, uh, that touches on some of these questions that I think I think you're totally right. I think these are complex questions and something that we in our culture certainly have not figured out. So we want to read uh, we want to read Joseph Pieper Aristotle on the philosophy of work. I love yeah, the thought yeah. about reading about and learning about leisure. It's yeah. fascinating to me. Totally. For our audience that wants to read some Aristotle, once they're finished with the Good Life Method written by you, what do we read for Aristotle? So I think the most accessible text from Aristotle is going to be the Nicomachean Ethics. He named it after uh, a family member, Nicomachius. So N-I-C-O-M-A-C-H-E-A-N, Nicomachean Ethics. I really do think, though, that there's a surprising amount out there on the internet, a surprising amount of books where philosophers are, are helping to explain, like, here's an insight from Aristotle. Um, I really do think there are great ways of kind of getting into it. So I, I would definitely recommend Aristotle. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at, at the Nicomachean Ethics. There's yeah. so so much of it out there, though. Yeah, it's. I think that's a wonderful recommendation. When did you finish? What is it? Twenty twenty two. So you. Pre, it's pretty recently that you finished and published the Good Life Method: Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. How many How many years did you work on it? Honestly, I mean, we worked on the class, like I said, eight or nine years, and the the book comes out of that so closely. Uh, we wrote the book in about eighteen months. We you know, we uh, were in touch with Penguin uh, a couple of years back, wrote it pretty quickly because so much of it is just material that we've been over and over with our students. And so the the book came out a year ago at this time, and now the paperback is out. I think January first of this year. And is this with Megan Sullivan? Yes. Yep, She's yep. the co-author. Does she also teach with you? Yep. And we've been uh, working together for many years on the course, on the book. Fascinating. I wish they'd had something like God of the Good Life at my university. So yeah. maybe I missed it. I did take so a couple, or, you know, I did take a couple philosophy classes, but it's been a long time and I'm glad to kind of revisit this. It's That's great. It's, it's really very deep, but I think it, it's certainly something that as we are on this journey to try to get to an early retirement, there's just so many questions about if I'm not working, which goes back to your thought around how Americans don't really know about leisure and we're so wrapped up in, in work, then we need more and more ways to be able to come to peace. A, I love the idea of really understanding deeply what your purpose is, which gets very philosophical. What is your personal philosophy? Uh, which can help while you're you're still working, and then particularly as you get into that that later phase, the 50s or 60s, uh, we're still trying to figure out that. I call it that the happy retiree. Absolutely, yeah, and I think that's fascinating too. Like I said, I think you know my my dad is even at this point in his career now. He's just retired, and we go back and forth and have these philosophical conversations all the time. Um, so curious. Like, what does life look like from that perspective? So I think that's- Is he enjoying uh, it? Or what year is, is it? How far into retirement is he? Just retired six months ago or so. And uh, yeah, so far, so far he's loving it. I saw a, a reference. I was, I was like looking around your page. Uh, I saw a reference to pickleball. This is like his his thing. He loves pickleball. Good. It's um, taking over. Yeah. It's taking it's over everywhere. the world. 
<laughs> he loves it. Um, we were early to the pickleball movement, but now I think everybody it's 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 not new anymore. It's been discovered. So, well, this it. is awesome. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. This is a deep conversation with some practicalities that I love. And I think it helps the the future early retiree. And, you know, I think I'd at least nail a B minus in your class. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. Hey, come on. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.